from deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, how did you spend your leap second? Wasn't that fabulous? It was, uh, you know, the sort of thing you wait for. For uh, I don't know how many how many years do we wait for that until it comes by again? I, I I know I'm on pins and needles waiting for it, or pills and needles waiting for it. A friend of mine spent his leap second trying to prove that he could calculate the exact length of a second and then argued with my iPhone about it. That was fun. But now, ladies and gentlemen, we're number one. Yes, actually, we are. I know I like to point out instances when we're not, but in... in um, in deference to the truth, one has to tip their one's hat every once in a while to the fact that we are number one, the United States, last year, 2016, remember that? Ranked number one in global weapons sales. We, you, me, we signed deals for about $40 billion. Let's see if Donald Trump can make better deals than those. Half of all arms agreements in the world, far ahead of France, <laughs> France, the number two weapons dealer with $15 billion in sales. That's according to a new congressional study. Who were the customers? Glad you asked. Developing nations, because, you know, they don't have hunger to worry about anymore. Qatar signed deals for more than $17 billion in weapons last year, followed by Egypt and Saudi Arabia, about which more in a moment, over $8 billion in weapons purchases to pursue that little that little thing in um, Yemen that's looking so good. If we could take our eyes off Syria for one minute, and also notice the genocide in uh, or the attempted genocide in Burma, but you know Syria. Although global tensions and terrorist threats have shown few signs of diminishing, the total size of the global arms trade dropped from the 2014 total of 89 billion to just 80 billion. Developing nations bought $65 billion. Oh, this last year, by last year, they mean 2015. They're reporting as of 2016. So developing nations bought $65 billion in 2015, lower than the previous year's total of $79 billion. The U.S. and France increased overseas weapons sales in 2015. Purchases of U.S. weapons grew by about $4 billion. I think we had a two-for-one sale, and we had that big uh, Christmas uh, thing. And France's deals increased by well over $9 billion. Wow. They have Sarkozy out there? No, they probably had uh, what's his, his ex-girlfriend out selling weapons. You know, that works. I remember when I was a kid and um, my parents were in the gas station business. And I, it's this is the first time I started reading the trades. I read the gas, you know, the oil and gas trade magazines. And every ad for, you know, for oil filters or for additives to the oil, to the gas tank to increase mileage or anything. The art direction was the same. The product in the hands of a girl in a swimsuit. But back to arms. Uh, the report was prepared by the Congressional Research Service, a division of the Library of Congress. It's the most comprehensive assessment of global arms sales available, unclassifiedly. Constraints on the expansion of foreign weapon sales were, according to the report, due in part to the weakened state of the global economy. And you thought we had a recovery. Concerns over their domestic budget problems have led many purchasing nations to defer or limit the purchase of new major weapon systems. 
said a uh, security policy specialist at the Congressional Research Service who authored the study. She put her name on it. She put her John Hack, well, her, her Catherine A. Theo Harry on it. Some nations have chosen to limit their purchasing to upgrades of existing systems and to training and support services, she said. What about Russia? It saw a modest decline in orders for its weapons. $11 billion in sales from the $11.2 billion in 2014. Maybe the word has gotten out that they don't work. We are number one, at least in weapon sales. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to um, invite you to a little thought experiment. Just imagine for a moment that Bernie Sanders had uh, received the Democratic Party presidential nomination and that he'd been elected president of the United States. I said it's a thought experiment. And as he was uh, conducting his transition period, um, a high-ranking staff member of the incoming Bernie Sanders administration was finding it almost impossible to find placement for her children in Washington, D.C. private schools because the establishment folks just pressured the administrations of the schools to keep those kids out. It's a thought experiment. And imagine that a lot of the restaurants in Washington, like the Palm, that feature portraits or caricatures of all the presidents on their walls were pres- being pressured by their kind of establishment patrons, the lobbyists and the journalists and the Pauls, to not feature a portrait of Bernie Sanders on the wall. What, what would your reaction be? What would you think of those people? Well, now... We um, go from fantasy to reality because that, that's ex- according to the Washington desk of this program, which reported a few weeks ago about the uh, the day after Election Day meeting at a cable TV news program where the executive producer began the meeting by saying, I know we're all in mourning today. This is the day after the election. Um, the Washington desk reports that that's exactly what's happening in the Washington of the Trump transition. Parents saying, no, don't let that those kids into our school. Don't uh, Patrons of restaurants saying, don't let that, don't put up a portrait of that. He's not really a president. Because, you see, ladies and gentlemen, we're the decent people. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi. I forgot your name. Whatever.
from a slightly soggy New Orleans, Louisiana. Not because we were pouring, but because it was pouring. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of Le- Happy New Year edition of the show. And now... I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. News of microplastics, ladies and gentlemen. Researchers from the universities of Bristol and Oxford working on the Royal Research Ship James Cook in the Mid-Atlantic and Southwest Indian Ocean have found evidence of microbeads inside, inside hermit crabs, squat lobsters. They don't know. And sea cucumbers at depths of between... 980 to 5,900 feet below the surface. In total, nine organisms were studied. Microplastics were found in six of them. This is the first time that microplastics have been shown to have been ingested by animals at such depth. Well, they were hungry. Well, you know, they don't have burgers down there. Microplastics are generally defined as particles less than 5 millimeters in length and include the microfibers analyzed in the study and the microbeads used in cosmetics, such as your toothpaste and your shower gel. Among the animals, oh, sorry, among the plastics discovered in the deep sea animals were polyester, polypropylene, viscous, nylon, and acrylic. You want those in your deep sea creatures, don't you? Keeps them strong. Microplastics are uh, roughly the same size as marine snow. I said marine snow. That's the shower of organic material that falls from the upper waters to the deep ocean. That's what many creatures down there feed on. They do eat the marine snow, as it turns out. The uh, author of the study said, The result astonished me and is a real reminder that plastic pollution has truly reached the ends of the earth. Unquote. Uh, Another author of the study, The main purpose of the expedition was to collect microplastics from sediments in the deep ocean, and we found lots of them. Given that animals interact with this sediment, such as living on it or eating eating it, we decided to look inside them to see if there was any evidence of ingestion. What's particularly alarming, he says, is that these microplastics weren't found in coastal areas, but in, in the deep ocean thousands of miles away from land-based sources of pollution. So if you want to get something somewhere far away in a hurry, forget about Federal Express. Microplastic, it. And a new study by the Rochester Institute of Technology. They got one of those? In Rochester, Rock, oh, Rochester Institute estimates that 10,000 tons of plastic and microplastic debris enter the Great Lakes every year. That is what makes them great, including 32 tons into Lake Superior. Which is what makes it superior, of course. Um, the study is the first picture of the true scale of plastic pollution in the Great Lakes. That is according to the lead author of the study. He used computer simulations to follow the volume of plastic debris moving across state and international boundaries from Illinois to Michigan and from Canada to the United States. And that we don't protest. How about sanctioning Canada for the plastics? Come on. Come on, folks. Half the plastic pollution entering the Great Lakes, 5,000 tons a year, goes into Lake Michigan, followed by Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, Lake Estimates of surface microplastics entering the lakes each year show 4.41 tons in uh, Lake Erie. Plastic pollution in Lake Michigan is approximately the equivalent of 100 Olympic-sized pools full of plastic bottles dumped into the lake every year. 
Why isn't that an Olympic event? Swimming, swimming in a pool full of plastic bottles. I would watch that. I really would. NBC? I really would. With the yearly amount of plastic in Lake Ontario equates to only 28 Olympic-sized pools full of plastic bottles. See, he, the scientist, he's already seen the possibilities of Olympic competition in news of microplastics, ladies and gentlemen, a copyright feature of this broadcast. So what's going on in, uh, first of all, news of Africa? A woman in Afghanistan has been beheaded for visiting a city without her husband. This is reported by the British newspaper, The Independent. The 30-year-old was decapitated and stabbed to death on Monday evening because belt and suspenders. The Middle East press claims a government spokesman told them Taliban militants killed her for the infidelity act of going shopping without a male guardian. The Taliban occupies the uh, town of Lati in uh, the Sar-i-Pul province of northern Afghanistan. It imposes, that does the Taliban, fierce policies of discrimination against women, which includes banning them speaking loudly in public, well, well, and (laughs) appearing in media. Punishments have included executions in football stadiums. Now, this is being reported as this, you know, sort of nasty stuff the Taliban's doing. Provincial governor spokesperson for the area said the woman's husband is in Iran and they don't have any children that could accompany her. Any male children, you see. So she didn't really. It also claims the woman affairs head of the uh, province has confirmed the incident took place. No one has been arrested. The Taliban have reportedly rejected any involvement. So that's that's what the mean old Taliban do. Now, Let's uh, move the focus of, let's move the lens over to our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. A 28-year-old Saudi woman has been sentenced to 200 lashes and six months in jail for indecency because she was gang-raped. Part of the sentence is for speaking out in media about her gang-rape. Back in 2006, she was driven to a secluded area after entering the car of a student friend when she was 19 years old. There she was raped by seven men. According to Saudi legislation, women must at all times be accompanied by a male family member in public. Well, that sounds like the town. The victim was initially sentenced in court to 90 lashes for not adhering to that law. Her rapists were sentenced to five years in prison. The sentence of the lashes was appealed by the victim's lawyer, Instead of mitigating her sentence, according to the Jerusalem Post, quoting Iran TV, wow, there's a head spinner for you. Instead of mitigating her sentence, the appeals court worsened it to 200 lashes from 90 and banned her lawyer, stripping him of his license under the claim that the woman committed the offense of speaking to media in addition to the gang rape. Human Rights Watch, according to Iran's press TV, said the ruling sends victims of sexual violence the message that they should not press charges. A Saudi man has been jailed for one year for calling for an end to the Muslim kingdom's guardianship system that gives men wide controls over women. The man was also fined about uh, $5,000 by a court, was convicted of inciting to end guardianship of women in statements he posted on Twitter and in posters. He was arrested while putting up posters in mosques calling for an end 
to the system that subjects women to male control in the ultra-conservative kingdom. Our freedom-loving friends, how dare they call him? The man was also behind an online campaign to end the guardianship system. He admitted putting up the posters in several mosques, saying he launched an awareness campaign after finding that some female relatives were facing injustice at the hands of their families. Thousands of Saudis signed in September a petition urging an end to the guardianship system following a Twitter campaign which was launched by the defendant. Saudi Arabia has some of the world's tightest restrictions on women. It's the only country in the world where women are not allowed to drive. A male family member, normally the father, husband, brother, or possibly son, must grant permission for a woman to study, travel, or shop. Even female prisoners have to be received by the Guardian upon their release, leaving some to languish in jail beyond their sentences if a man does not want to accept them. But lest you get the wrong idea about Saudi Arabia, they carried out 153 executions last year, slightly down from the year before. According to Amnesty, Saudi Arabia carried out that number of death sentences coming in third after Iran. Ooh, and Afghanistan and Pakistan, sorry, our friend. Uh, those figures, of course, uh, compiled by Amnesty don't include China because China don't tell us anything. 47 people were put to death for terrorism offenses on a single day in January last year. Our freedom-loving friends in uh, but those were good trials, too. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the focus of the program shifts rapidly to... News of the Godly. And uh, this focuses on... Car- uh, first of all... Our first story focuses on Cardinal Pell, who um, is an Australian, um, who is moved to the Vatican. He is now one of Pope Francis's top advisors. He was testifying in that uh, long-running Australian inquiry into historic clerical, not clerks, uh, uh, sex abuse. He heard that an Australian Catholic school teacher who serially abused students might be involved in pedophilia activity in the 1970s, but said he had no idea how rampant clergy abuse was at the time during that hearing. George Pell testified via video link from Rome to the commission in Sydney. How about those fireworks, Cardinal, Cardinal Pell? Do you like those? He also conceded the Catholic Church, quote, has made enormous mistakes, unquote, in allowing thousands of children to be raped and molested by priests, his words. Two dozen Australian abuse survivors and their companions traveled to Rome to witness his testimony in a conference room. I'm not here to defend the indefensible, Pell said. The church has made enormous mistakes and is working to remedy them. He said the church had, quote, mucked things up and let people down. Well, he knows he's up from his down. And for too long had dismissed credible abuse allegations, quote, in absolutely scandalous circumstances, unquote. He's accused of ignoring warnings when he was assistant priest about Christian brother Edward Dowland. He was a teacher in Ballarat, a deeply Catholic city, devastated by the disclosures about the huge number of abuse victims there, according to the AP, scores of whom later killed themselves. Pell is now Pope Francis's top financial advisor because they got to pay out a lot of money for all this. 
He's repeatedly denied allegations that he ignored warnings decades ago that Dowling was abusing students under questioning. He said he'd heard one or two fleeting references to misbehavior, which I concluded might have been pedophilia activity. But he had not known victims' names. There were no, not, no, did not know there were large numbers of victims or that his offending was general knowledge at the school. You, no way to find out if something is general knowledge. You couldn't ask people. Dowling was sentenced to six years in prison last year for abusing 20 boys. He was also, he testified, been aware of a Christian brother named Leo Fitzgerald, who swam naked with students. Said he'd been told by parishioners that Fitzgerald also had a cab- habit of kissing boys. Pell said he had not believed the kissing to be sexual because the naked, you know. It was certainly unusual, but nobody said we've got to do something about this, Pell said. This is the closest he's publicly come to stating he had even tangential awareness of the scandal playing out in Ballarat. Many people, according to evidence presented to the commission, around Pell knew about the abuse. The sexual offending was known by a significant number in the community. Would you agree with that, he was asked? Quote, I would agree that it was known to all the people whom we've mentioned, and they do constitute a significant number, he said. He came... He came around eventually. Um, He was an advisor to a former bishop of Ballarat, Ronald Mulkerns. Mulkerns moved Australia's most notorious pedophile priest, Gerald Ridsdale, between parishes for years, although Pell denies he was involved in that. He dubbed the uh, handling of Ridsdale, quote, a catastrophe for the church. He also acknowledged he too had made mistakes and often believing the priests over the victims. Quote, I must say in those days, if a priest denied such activity, I was very strongly inclined to accept the denial. Unquote. Well, they're priests. And Pope Francis was told as early as 2014 that a Catholic priest accused of sexually abusing children in Italy had been reassigned to a school in Argentina where he has since been arrested on suspicion of molesting a child. The Reverend Nicola Corradi was arrested in late November alongside four other men following allegations of abuse. Tom? Allegations? Yes. At the Antonio Provolo Institute for Hearing Impaired Children in Mendoza Province. He, Reverend Corradi, was named in the scandal that hit the Institute's school where seven, in 2009, 67 students alleged they had been abused. The diocese apologized to students there, and the Vatican sanctioned four priests, though not Reverend Corradi. In 2014, the students sent the Pope a letter, acknowledged only this year, again naming him as an abuser living in Argentina. This is according to the British newspaper, The Independent. When Reverend Corradi was arrested, police reportedly found $35,000 along with magazines featuring naked women in his room. Well, naked women's okay. Two dozen students said they were attacked by Reverend Corradi and three and four other men in the school in a city about 600 miles northwest of Buenos Aires. One told AP, quote, they always said it was a game. Let's go play. Let's go play. And they would take us to the girls' bathroom. Just reminding you, this was a school for hearing impaired children. Boom. Wanna do death balls boom, boom. in the next room? Boom, boom. Now they're in the closet boom, boom. between me and the broom. Boom, boom. Half a dozen death balls. Boom, boom. Mm, 
nice little crowd. Boom, boom. They can be quiet. Boom, boom. And I can be loud. Boom, boom. Four and twenty deaf boys. Boom, boom. Take me all day. Boom, boom. Barely got the time to. Boom, boom. Eat and to pray. Boom, boom. Deaf boys can't hear me coming. Deaf boys, don't you dare call it slumming. Might be a chink in my priestly parts, but how can I resist? How can deaf I resist? Boys? Boom, 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 boom. Half a hundred deaf boys. Boom, boom. Who got a head of steam? Boom, boom. I could be the coach. Boom, boom. They could be the team. Eighty-eight deaf boys, boom, boom. one for each key, boom, boom. on the piano of my longing, boom, boom. they play a hushed melody, boom, boom. hundred fifty deaf boys, boom, boom. oh, this could get tight, boom, boom. a few dozen in the morning, boom, boom. and all the rest at night, boom, boom. deaf boys, can't Coming. Deaf boys got my heart strings a-strumming Make me make such a joyful noise Just can't get enough Just can't Deaf get enough Now if I had a deaf boy For each day of the year Three hundred and sixty-five Oh, that would be dear how many deaf boys have there actually been? Why not ask how many? Dance on the head of a pin. The world is full of deaf boys, and I'm only one man. All that God expects is do all that you can. Coming. Deaf boys got me hymning and humming A shepherd with a closet full of toys Let's hear it for those deaf boys Now 
all those big wheels with all their big deals they're going to need their sleep but i'm a dropout who'd rather cop out than run with uh, all the sheep honey child tonight's the night and there's a car i can borrow till tomorrow we can swing till broad daylight we got a small day tomorrow their big deals they're going to need their eight hours sleep but I'm a dropout who'd rather cop out than run with her with all the sheep honey child tonight's the night There's a car we can borrow Till day after tomorrow We're gonna swing Clear out of sight Yeah, 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 yeah We got a big night And a small day Tomorrow From New Orleans, this is the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Adam. ceremony spun all night i guess that's it broken switch at the abloc did you change direction reverse my spin no thank you a broken switch at diablo canyon nuclear power plant near san luis obispo california that left a reactor cooling system temporarily inoperable i think they mean inoperative 
has prompted the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to cite the plant for a low-risk safety finding. That's better than no risk. I guess it is. The NRC issued a white finding, claiming the plant failed to adequately maintain an aspect of its emergency core cooling system. That was a low-to-moderate safety risk at the plant. I guess that doesn't really deal with emergencies, then. I, I think it does. The NRC evaluates regulatory performance at nuclear plants. Their color codings go from green to white to yellow to red in order of increasing safety significance. pg has since corrected the situation. That's Pacific Gas and Electric that runs the plant, says the spokesman, and they plan to appeal the finding, the ruling. We're absolutely committed to the highest safety standards, he said. You don't have to sound ironic when you quote it. The relentless focus on safety led us to discover this issue and make immediate repairs. The two units at Diablo Canyon. That's the Devil's Canyon, isn't it? That is. Are each equipped with two emergency core cooling systems. They use water to cool the reactors should an accident or malfunction occur. Not going to happen. During a scheduled test in May, workers discovered that one of the cooling systems for Unit 2 had been operable for up to... uh, Inoperative. For up to a year and a half. That was immediate repair? That's right. That particular system system had been last checked in October 2014. Well, immediate is, you know, in the the geological time frame of Adams. That seems immediate. All right, fair enough. Customers of Tokyo Electric have paid over $20 billion to cover nuclear-related costs since the uh, utility hiked electricity prices in September 2012, it's only fair. The amount covers the costs of clerical work for processing applications for compensation related to the Fook disaster, totaling $222 million. It's a lot of paperwork. A lot of compensation. As well as $486 million set aside to repay the government for compensation paid on TEPCO's behalf and $355 million in depreciation costs for the two reactors at Fook number 1 that were decommissioned and for all four reactors at Fook number 2 which uh, the state government wants decommissioned. Decommissioning doesn't come cheap. Keep it open. The costs also included those to maintain its nuclear plants and to deal with the triple meltdown. The uh, utility counted $5.2 billion in annual nuclear-related expenses as part of its overall costs when it raised electricity prices. The nuclear-related costs are expected to keep growing because TEPCO has been unable to start any reactors. When it raised prices, the utility assumed the ratio of nuclear power to its overall electricity supply would fall to 7% from 22%. They plan to restart two new reactors elsewhere. It's not cheap. Not cheap to have a nuclear accident. I guess not. Cheap Cheap is not safe, and safe is not cheap. That's cute. Work has stopped on two new rulemakings to better align U.S. radiation protection regulations with international standards due to the high cost of implementing such changes. That's according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission reported by Bloomberg. Used to be mayor. Yes, that Bloomberg. The discontinuation of these two uncompleted rulemakings was announced right at the end of the year. The uh, commission has approved 150 measures to cut costs to reduce its budget and streamline programs as part of a initiative called Project AIM. <laughs> You're saying nothing. I like the name of the project. 
The commission formally approved the discontinuation of the rulemakings in April. This is the first time it's notified the public. A uh, security scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Was he concerned? He is concerned, says the termination of these rulemakings makes the U.S. look out of step with the rest of the world. It makes it look like we're basing our regulations on obsolete information. I think that's going to erode the credibility of the NRC internationally. The uh, spokesman for the industry says the existing radiation protection rulemakings are adequate. Well, he would. Yeah. The uh, NRC's effort to uh, change the rules was started by staff eight years ago, would have updated NRC's radiation protection standards to align with international standards, primarily with respect to radiation dose assessment methodology and terminology. The staff had previously recommended the commission reduce the total dose exposure from 50 millisieverts per year to 20. The commission disapproved of this recommendation. The commission's decision not to lower its dose exposures to those of the rest of the world is equivalent to, quote, throwing out one of the most significant changes to get the U.S. in step with the rest of the world, according to the spokesman for the Union of Concerned Scientists. The rest of the world is really not that relevant, is it? I don't, apparently not. The legal saga surrounding plutonium disposition and construction at Savannah River Sites MOX facility began nearly a year ago and will begin a new chapter. The South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, now the incoming U.N. ambassador, initiated legal action against the Department of Energy a year ago after the Energy Department failed to meet deadlines and fulfill obligations of the state regarding plutonium currently stored in Savannah. 13 metric tons there. A little more than half was part of an international agreement to permanently demilitarize plutonium. I liked it in the military. I, I felt safer. You're an atom. Who, in the agreement with Russia, the U.S. pledged to process the material through the Mixed Oxide Fuel Fabrication Facility at St. Thana River. Plutonium processed that way would be mixed with uranium, creating commercial fuel that couldn't be used for weapons. The original construction license for the plant was in 2005. The uh, legislation was passed requiring the Department of Energy to meet the construction deadline or remove at least one metric ton of plutonium from the state of South Carolina each year beyond the missed construction deadline. The Department of Energy missed both deadlines. Well, they're consistent. The state lawsuit is trying to get legal enforcement of a $1 million daily penalty against the Energy Department. The uh, Department of Energy said some of the plutonium had been passed through a dilute and dispose process but listed then ten listed less than 10 kilogram. Not only has the DOA fa- continually fallen short of its obligations, more plutonium was brought into the state last year. This is according to the Aiken, South Carolina Standard newspaper. A transportation ship brought 20 kilograms of plutonium shipped to the U.S. by the Swiss government. Got to keep the cuckoo clocks working. And 30, 331 kilogram in May was imported from Japan. Thank you, Sony. Nikki Haley has repeatedly told the federal government that South Carolina will not tolerate being treated as a nuclear dumping ground. What kind of dumping ground would they like to be? I don't know. Ask her. And signing limited, if any, effects, the Nuclear Regulation Regulation Authority in Japan says the highly touted frozen soil wall at TEPCO in Fuk should be relegated to a secondary role. Meaning no role? Meaning... $292 million 
was spent to build the underground ice wall to prevent groundwater from mixing with radioactive water in four reactor buildings at the crippled plant. But the Japan nuclear watchdog concluded at the end of the year the wall has been ineffective in diverting the water away from the buildings. Meaning didn't work. I, th- I think that's what it means. Clean, cheap, too ineffective to meter our friend the atom. And um, now, ladies and gentlemen, some secrets. Let's hear about some secrets, shall we? The um, This is uh, reporting by the um, apparently tireless Carol Rosenberg of the Miami Herald, who has been uh, reporting from, I think it's the only r- reporter, not the only one of the few, on the Guantanamo beat. A federal judge this week ordered the Obama administration to deliver to his court's top-secret storage site a copy of the so-called Senate torture report on the CIA's black site prison program. Judge Royce Lamberth, a Ronald Reagan appointee, issued the two-page order this week in the uh, case of a uh, Guantanamo detention of a former CIA prisoner, Abd el-Rahim al-Nashiri. He was waterboarded and rectally abused while a captive of the CIA. He's waiting a trial by a military commission. Lamberth also ordered the government to preserve and maintain all evidence, documents, and information without limitation now or ever in the U.S. government's possession, control, or custody relating to the torture, mistreatment, and or abuse of detainees held in the custody of the executive branch since 9-11. Of course, that's kind of moot because the CIA's Jose Rodriguez destroyed the videotape evidence of the enhanced interrogation procedures in the black sites and was given a nice uh, book deal for his efforts and featured on 60 Minutes. That um, Senate torture report, you may remember a week earlier, President Obama decided not to declassify it, but to hold it in the secret part of his archives so you can't see it for at least 12 years because it's the most transparent administration in history. Don't you know? The report has an entire chapter on Nashiri's treatment during his CIA custody for four years. His lawyers, paid by the Pentagon, asked the military judge in the, in the capital case, he is facing a death sentence, to furnish them with a copy for trial preparation. That didn't happen. The 9-11 case judge has yet to rule on a recent request for a similar preservation order. Meanwhile, lawyers asked uh, for that for Nashiri, asked the judge in, in the case, the military judge, to order four key CIA figures at the time of his waterboarding to testify. You need to hear from the torturers themselves, said the defense attorney, seeking an indefinite freeze over the CIA's destruction of the videotapes. I don't know, free, freeze of what? The lead prosecutor said the tape destruction issue was premature at this phase of the pretrial hearings. These are dragging on, as you know, forever. It, uh, the hearing afforded the criminal defense attorney an opportunity to refer to revelations in a new book, Enhanced Interrogation, by one of the witnesses he seeks, former CIA contract psychologist James Mitchell, who, with his partner, Jessen, I had to forget Jessen's first name, devised the enhanced interrogation techniques by reverse engineering the Army's program to teach its, uh, and the Air Force's program, to teach its 
members to resist Chinese torture during the Korean War, you see. In his book, Mitchell describes how Nashiri was too small and slipped from the straps of the waterboard during the three sessions of simulated drownings. The Saudis accused of overseeing the bombing of the USS Cole in Aden Harbor at the behest of Osama bin Laden. Nashiri's lawyers want so former CIA attorney John Rizzo, ah, Rodriguez, Jose Rodriguez, who destroyed the tapes, Mitchell and his partner, Bruce, Bruce Jessen, to testify about the tapes as well as about their destruction at the time of the federal protection order. That would be, you know, destruction of evidence. So they'll be discuss, dis- discussing that for a while. But this is a, um, a landmark. Mitchell has gone public with a book detailing how he and Jessen, I believe they made about $84 million in their contract with the CIA. Mitchell himself engaged in some of the interrogation sessions that he taught the CIA how to do. Neither Mitchell nor Jessen had had any experience in interrogation before they were hired to devise the interrogation program. And Ali Soufam, who worked for the FBI at the time, said that uh, his questioning of one of the major detainees pre-waterboarding resulted in more information being uh, obtained than was ever obtained in these sessions run either by or under the guidance of Mitchell and Jessen. Mitchell and Jessen signed up to teach a lesson to the CIA. Mitchell and Jessen inducing, confessing, they could do it all day. A couple of shrinks for hire, they did nothing but aspire to make millions. Off of torture Never did it before But they had read up on the lore You get better When you do mortar Making learned helplessness and the winding way to the truth. Mitchell and Jessen, for the troops, it got depressing. Guarding the cage and the booth. A couple of shrinks at large, helping to lead the charge to take the handcuffs. Off of torture Now we know each one's name And they can dig their fame Either in jail Or on their porch
Mitchell and Jessen, the pain doesn't lessen for the customers of their wares. Mitchell and Jessen, no salad all dressing, but after all, no one cares. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. The Chief of Staff to Mobile, Alabama, Mayor Sandy Stimpson issued a public apology for his responsibility in having a cedar tree cut down at Public Safety Memorial Park and transported to Ladd People Stadium as a prop during President-elect Donald Trump's final thank you rally in Mobile. Stimpson's Chief of Staff said he became overzealous in making sure every detail was covered and the expectations of Trump's team were exceeded. I now know there are citizens who are upset and offended that a tree from a city park was used as part of decoration from the event. I accept full responsibility for having this done, said Cooper. For this, I sincerely apologize. Going forward, I will be more sensitive to the spectrum of concerns regarding trees, he says. The Dallas Cowboys apologized this week for a backlog in filling online orders of jerseys and other merchandise that left some customers without Christmas gifts. This has been the biggest and busiest year in team history, said spokesman Joe Trahan. Another Trahan. Hundreds of additional workers were hired. He acknowledged some customers did not receive their orders from the pro shop in time for Christmas. said any customers who experience problems can email the team. Because that'll keep you busy. Fox and Friends co-host Abby Huntsman apologized on air this week after sharing an inaccurate report on Fox News regarding food stamp fraud. Earlier this week, the Fox News personality reported that food stamp fraud is at an all-time high and that an estimated $70 million of taxpayer money was wasted on food stamp fraud last year. That was actually incorrect, Huntsman said. The latest information from 2009 to 2011 shows the fraud at 1.3%. Nationally, food stamp trafficking is on the decline. So, sorry about that mistake. The Agriculture Department asked Fox News to correct the story, according to the Washington Post. We're not quite sure where this came from, said a U.S. Department of Agriculture spokesman. I think I know. Robot. Uh, Lake County, Illinois, councilman used the last council meeting of 2016 to apologize to fellow officials for his legal troubles last year. Councilman Jamal Washington said he had apologized to his constituents but never took the chance to publicly say he was sorry to fellow councilmen who worked alongside him since a domestic incident uh, in 2015 resulted in two counts of strangulation and one count of domestic battery, all felonies. This has been a tough year for me personally, Washington said. I ultimately want to apologize to my council for putting them in this situation. The Toronto sisters accused of trying to extort and cyber-bully a Nigerian billionaire through the website Nijagjist Live has, have apologized and taken responsibility for the site in a video posted on YouTube. Yoti and Kiran Mataru appear in the video dressed in black. One holds a cell phone appearing to read the apology from it while the other stands silently beside her. That sounds like good YouTubing right there. Deadline Fairbank Alaska Santa Claus Facebook account has been reinstated after the social media company suspended his access and demanded proof of identity on Christmas Day. Claus, a North Pole Alaska city councilman, said he was never given a reason why his Facebook page was blocked. Maybe he knows Lee Sklar. He said he thought Facebook didn't believe his name was Santa Claus or that he lived in the North Pole. A Facebook spokeswoman apologized in an email for suspending Claus' account. The account was removed in error and restored as soon as we were able to investigate. Our team processes million re- millions of reports each week, and we sometimes get, thing- get things wrong. 
unquote, a statement that is often, I think, is boilerplate in Facebook apologies, but check me on that. He's the only, Claus says he's the only Santa Claus on Facebook who resides in North Pole and legally goes by the name. I can't believe somebody, particularly on Christmas, would take me to task. He goes, he uses the social media platform to share nice quotes. The Alabama woman who received a package of dead birds earlier this uh, December has received an apology and an offer for reimbursement from the U.S. Postal Service. A representative apologized to Rhonda King in Huntsville, Alabama, and offered to pay back the $600 the woman paid for eight canaries. In early December, the Postal Service delivered six dead canaries to her hair salon. The approved box in which the birds were shipped from Texas was smashed. The birds were dead. Carnage hung from the box that was also marked with tire tracks. That's the U.S. Postal Service, ladies and gentlemen. And those were the canaries in the mail in the mailroom. Uh, Dateline Tokyo, in the months before she jumped to her death from a company dormitory last Christmas, a young employee at a Japanese advertising agency told friends on Twitter of enduring harassment and grueling long hours on the job. They're making we work Saturdays and Sundays again, the employee wrote in one post. I seriously want to end it all. It's 4 a.m. My body's trembling. I'm going to die. I'm so tired. On Wednesday, the president and chief executive of the ad agency in question, Dentsu, one of the world's largest, said he would resign to take responsibility for her death, as well as the larger problem of dangerously long work hours at the agency. Better slogan, longer hours, better slogan. He, uh, we are taking this seriously. The Dentsu president, Tadashi Ishii, said at a news conference, I offer my heartfelt apology. Can we come up with a slogan for that? This weekend, overtime, please. The eight-line Fayetteville, Arkansas. Arkansas tight and Jeremy Sprinkle apologized for attempting to shoplift from a Belk store while on a Belk Bowl players outing in a statement released this week. He was suspended for the Razorbacks. That's the University of Arkansas. Lost to Virginia Tech after being cited for shoplifting when he was caught attempting to steal $259.59 worth of merchandise when the players visited the the store to use their $450 Belk gift card, the bowl game gift for both teams. A Grand Rapid man apologized for letting down his community this week as he was sentenced for election fraud. Tuesday afternoon, a judge handed down a 30-day jail sentence to 27-year-old Brandon Hall. A jury convicted him of forging petition signatures tied to a 2012 election. He expressed love and a sense of loyalty to the community even as he was punished for betraying trust. I'm sorry to my students, my friends, my, uh, sorry, sorry to my friends, my family, and the community who I know I've let down. And Cinnabon apologized for a tweet it sent in the wake of the news that Star Wars icon Carrie Fisher had died. Our deleted tweet was genuinely meant as a tribute, but we shouldn't have posted it. We're truly sorry. The tweet said she still has the best buns in the universe. And Sony says sorry for uh, uh, Britney Spears' Twitter account being hacked and falsely reporting the pop star's death. And Carl Paladino, the co-chair of Donald Trump's presidential campaign in New York, apologized for remarks he made last week in which he wished President Obama would die of mad cow disease and said Michelle Obama should be let loose on the outback of Zimbabwe. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at harryshare.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. Available as a free podcast at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it would be just like fewer celebrities dying in 2017 if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Typical show. Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Next Island, Hawaii desk, and the Washington desk. And thanks to Pam Halstead and Jenny Lawson here at WWNO. New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, the playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts as Valentine's Day gifts. What do you think? All at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. Happy New Year from New Orleans.